Hi and hello watch fans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker Rob Nudds and my co-host Alan Ben-Joseph calling in all the way from Amsterdam. Today we have another Q&A session for you and it proves to be quite an exhilarating one due to the controversies that are breaking around the industry as we speak. Firstly, welcome to the studio, Alan. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, buddy? We had an uh, out-of-the-ordinary the real-time show week was fun. I got a lot of feedback on our duo-packaged Argon week, which was fun. So that's nice to see. Uh, the day that I'm recording this, I just said goodbye to Hakim Al-Kadiri. Recorded an episode with him as well, which will air in two days from the moment people hear this. So it's the following up, following episode. Did cool stuff with him, including a Red Bar Crew Amsterdam session last night. So that was great fun, huge turnout, and got actually loads of feedback on our episodes, the real-time show episodes, one of them that got repeated actually several times, which is they actually miss the interviews that we do together. So they urged us to do more of them. So I warned them that there will be a few more where I go solo, you go solo, because both of us are extremely busy. But here on air, I'll promise that we're going to do more of them. Yeah, that might actually go hand in hand with some more feedback we've been getting for quite a while now. And we've decided to act upon it. And that is that we might be putting out a little bit too much content for our regular listeners to stay on top of. And it's really heartening to know that it matters to the people that have followed us from day one and latterly become addicted to the show that they really do want to consume everything we put out. But two full hour shows a week is a little much maybe. And since we have established as a watchmaking first the audicle concept where we read aloud articles written by David Vaucher, we're going to bring that into more regular rotation at the expense of one of the full episodes per week. So perhaps not every week, but certainly sometimes in the future we'll have a full episode on Tuesday and then an audicle episode on Thursday, a full episode the following Tuesday, and an analysis show the following Thursday feeding back into the original audicle. That preceded it. So there'll be a bit of a mixture of content and that will hopefully free up a bit more time so we can come together more and interview guests at the same time. Because you're absolutely right. Not only is it fun for the listeners, it's a lot of fun for us. And it's really nice to get to know all of the people we're able to invite onto the show. And we've done quite a large cross-section of the industry now. And we had our first real press guest on with Ariel Adams featuring in the show a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to have more. We've got hopefully Andrew McCutcheon from Time and Tide coming on and then we'll hopefully get some more people from European blogs and further afield, maybe even someone from Revolution, who knows? Oh, by the way, I started writing for Revolution USA, so if you want to go check out that work, you can do so on uh, revolutionwatch.com. And that's the address, isn't it, Alan? Okay, back to Red Bar. First question we're going to answer today, just because it feeds so nicely on from what you were saying about your crew meetup last night this question comes in from jacques mace from ig direct message he says what do you actually do during red bar crew events alon since you have one fresh in your mind why don't you take this away it's actually funny because more and more cities are being added as official red bar crew chapters which is super cool and we all follow each other on Instagram and some new chapter heads reach out to me 
and we talked to him. But honestly, as Adam Craniotes and the whole team in HQ Red Bar Crew, New York seem laid back and cool. They are laid back and cool. There are no strict hardcore guidelines. There are no requirements, and we don't need to bow down and abide whatever they say. That's cool. But that also means that apparently every city does something different. So Amsterdam, we now are, I believe, a meetup 17 and planned 18. We try to meet up at least every month, try to do 12 events a year. And we now found a cadence of one month is just us members. We always rent out a place, have it exclusive to ourselves, a bar. And everybody pays a fee and it's an open bar. And we meet in the evenings, everybody brings their watches and we just hang out and have fun. And often the other month is sponsored by a brand. We still meet on neutral territory. It's often that bar or a different bar. And the brand pays for the open bar, so it's the entrance fee is free of charge. There is no fee. And the brand is very low-key, very casual, holds a speech for just 10 minutes, brings some watches, but it doesn't mean they dominate the evening. It's still business as usual, meaning mingling, chatting, hanging out, and bringing your own watches. So that's what we do in Amsterdam. I literally go there as a watch freak, a private person. Um, I volunteer to the organization. Today I have an amazing uh, team helping me out, which a shout out to Ruben, uh, Bouter, and Dan. And they help me a lot because we're actually growing. We're, we're creeping to 300 members slowly now. So it's pretty cool. Very awesome. And it's actually a very good question because I'm very curious what all other cities is. I, obviously, you are a chapter head as well, and I know you're active. So I'm very curious to hear your experiences. One that I know of is an old Red Bar Crew Amsterdam member. And this is a shout out to you, Gary. Uh, he moved to Texas. and there. I heard from him they usually rent out a room in a big restaurant and they do a either lunch or a dinner and they hang out sitting down. So we are actually standing and walking around. And I'm very curious what, what your expenses are, Rob. Well, that's interesting because I'd always quite naively assumed in the early days of my interactions with Red Bar that it was pretty consistent. But you're right, there are differences all over the place. Now, I am ahead of the Red Bar Manchester faction, but I'm not as active as I used to be because, of course, I now live in Germany. So getting back over there for what are now infrequent events following the pandemic has been difficult and something I hope to address in the future. But I'm also lucky to have worked with Red Bar chapters in America quite extensively. I've given talks to Red Bar enclaves in let me think new york minnesota houston dallas california somewhere california i think san francisco and amongst other places and i remember quite clearly them being quite different events so just to give you a quick buzz around so new york more like um bar style events which is where it all started of course in the red bar 
Um, in Minnesota, I gave a presentation in a retailer in JB Hudson upstairs, and they invited the local Red Bar chapter, and there was around 30 or 40 people all seated in a sort of lecture-style arrangement, and I had a projector and a slideshow to go through. And then I did one in a small retailer standing up behind a vitrine in Houston in Lewis Jewelers in Uptown Park, I believe. And there was definitely like a night event with Timeless Luxury in Dallas when Mike Pearson was running the store. Mike Pearson, who's been on the show himself and is now in with Zodiac, he organized a lovely event in a, in a really great location. It was a bar, but a bit more of a trendy bar and it's a bit more of a dynamic event. There was a presentation, but everybody was on their feet and milling around and it had quite a party atmosphere. In Manchester, we generally rent out a private room in a pub or a bar around the center of Manchester, often in the Northern Quarter, sometimes in the Britain's Protection which is a nice pub with a great whiskey selection down near Deansgate. And we have a closed door event, really, so people can't just sort of flit in if they're not part of the crew. Obviously, that helps with security. And we have a chat, and oftentimes we have an open bar. Oh, and also I've done um, Copenhagen as well with Arkenaut, where Anders, James, and I gave speeches to a Danish crowd, and we had all paid a fee for that evening, and we had our free drinks. Yeah, so it was really nice. It was really great. It's a great way to meet a whole bunch of different people and in all different settings see watches you've never seen before talk to people from different strata of the industry and make friends ultimately which is the most important thing alon any more thoughts on red bar from your side awesome to hear how many you've attended and visited and how different they are um maybe for those that are either in a city where there is no red bar or they're aspiring to find uh or to found a chapter I get a lot of DMs privately and on the Red Bar Amsterdam channels. Uh, is the question, how do I start one? Why is um, Adam or HQ not responding? So out there, all the logos are the same. There are some chapters that started because they didn't get an answer from HQ and they just made the logo. My advice, verify with HQ if the chapter is real and only register then. We deal with private data very very securely and privacy and since we all bring a lot of watches we always make sure that the security is up to par now if you're aspiring to set up a chapter just keep on messaging hq they nowadays i, I want to also say kudos to the team in new york it is kind of non-profit ish meaning they're a team i believe of three people they're trying to synchronize everything they set up a server on Discord, trying to coordinate the whole global network. You can imagine it's a lot of work. So they're working on it. It's work in progress. They have global meetups. Last one is London. They made a cool call up, by the way, with Bamford. So things are getting synchronized. They're answering better. So if you want to set up your chapter, just send them friendly reminders if you don't get a respond on your DM or email. That's a little thing I wanted to send out into the airwaves. Very nice, very nice indeed. Now, on a slightly less optimistic and buoyant note, there has been some great controversy around a auction piece which you may or may not have heard of thus far involving an historic, or apparently not historic, Omega Speedmaster. Now, the controversy here is that the watch was ultimately purchased at auction by Omega and then assessed to not be legitimate. 
Now, the really sad news about this, and we don't want to speculate on anything because this is an ongoing investigation that looks to be moving to the criminal level. Now, according to the reporting thus far, we just want to relay the news thus far that's been reported in the mainstream media and um, to give our listeners uh, what kind of insight we can to it, or at least point you in the direction of where you can learn more, because this is a really sensitive topic involving one of the industry's biggest brands and uh, a massive auction house in Phillips. A lot of respected individuals caught up in what is an absolute mess. The story was broken by the investigative watch journalist Periscope, who has throughout his career endured a great deal of criticism and vitriol for being um, the voice, uh, the lone voice against corruption in the industry on many occasions. But I think he has really covered himself in glory with his work this time. And hopefully, I would say he starts to get a bit more of the respect he deserves and is uh, seen in the industry as somebody that's fighting the good fight rather than a troublemaker, as I think many big brands tried to paint him in the past. Alon, I know this is a very sensitive topic. Um, We promised our audience we would at least mention it because we're the real-time show. We're not going to pretend that we have uh, behind-the-scenes insights here. We don't want to rock the boat and, like I say, say anything that is in any way negatively impactful to an ongoing investigation but give us your feelings on maybe the nature of this issue and how sad you find the story as it breaks and develops that article you're referring to was published i believe in april i missed it then somebody in the real time show network posted it and we discussed it in the group and it also came simultaneously with the notification that omega doesn't they stopped their extract of archive service, if I name it correctly. It's not so much a certificate of authentication. So that sparked up also a lot of discussion and revived the discussion. And then this whole story of fraudulent activity around an Omega Speedmaster being sold by Philips and bought by Omega wasn't as it claimed to be. Okay, now that's not something new. It's maybe as old as Rome that people sell stuff and claim it to be something that it's not, okay? So that's sad, always bad. And the tricky part here is the claims being made in public media, and I believe in a statement issued by Omega, is that three Omega employees are part of this fraudulent action and if i recollect correctly and summarize it very briefly that vintage omega watch is a frankenstein when do we call a watch a frankenstein when the parts in the watch are not original anymore meaning not the same date as the complete watch so it can have original parts made by the brand or of obviously remade or replicas, or etc. But if I understood correctly, in this PD, the employees by Omega, affiliated to the Omega Museum, and everybody keeps on saying that also one of the three is the head of the museum, or the previous head of the museum, which most of us in the industry know. I don't want to mention his or her name, because if I think who it is, I know that person very well for a very long time 
and knowing to be a stand-up person. So I'm sad about that as well. Um, I can't believe it even. The claim is that these Omega employees have willingly participated and worked together with the seller of the watch, a third party, upgraded the watch in the sense making it a Frankenstein to make it look like it's worth more. And they had a double hat on because Omega wanted to buy that watch at the auction, the Philips auction. And apparently the buyer bidding in the auction, an employee of Omega, was the head of the museum. So that person had a double hat on. And I believe that's the summary. Rob, did I forget something? No, I think you touched upon everything. I, I Just so that the audience know what you mean by a double hat is that they were not only behind the, as far as the articles thus far are claiming, behind the uh, falsifying of the watch itself, but also the authentication of the piece. So that's the real kicker. That's what I think is going to cause the greatest problems for Omega as they look to address this issue. Yes, so you're right. So it, it, it seems they did three things. Indeed, appraise it or authenticate it, willingly changed it, and then also manipulated the price. So they upgraded the price. So th these are three things. Yeah, it's difficult to know exactly if all of what's being suggested is true. We obviously won't know until the investigation runs its course. But for all of us in the industry, it's very sad, really more on a personal level. Now, I don't know the people in question personally. I have many friends who do know them personally. You, Alon, of course, RJ over at Fratello. And I think RJ should receive some real plaudits for his journalistic integrity eventually approaching this issue and writing about it because obviously due to Fratello's relationship with Omega it's sensitive but they had no option really but to come out and say something and I think he said it in, in as diplomatic a way as he possibly could um, because that's going to be tough if everything that's being suggested at the moment transpires to be true and we have this inside job going on uh, to try and defraud one of the largest and most respected watchmaking institutions in the industry and perpetrated by one of the more liked and respected people and and the collaborators in the industry, it will be just a very dark day. Now, we, we also cannot speculate as to what's gone on, what motivations there were, what personal things led to something like this happening. Um, the reason why there's so much shock, I think, in, in Alon's response to it is that it's, um, from what we know, largely a character of the accused but um time will tell we will monitor the situation we won't dodge it we will share what we know we will try not to speculate irresponsibly and if you hear anything read anything you want us to address it we'll do our very best we can't promise anything because we're not on the inside of this investigation we will just keep an eye on it and make sure that we're not shirking our responsibility as um, an open watch media outlet by not discussing it so Alon, any further thoughts or shall we leave this one sadly where it is for now and uh, pick it up later? Yeah, for now I want to leave it. There are a few theories spinning around in my head and let's just keep it for the sake of it. The only little positive note I want to end on is that um, you're right, Robodian, our mutual friend, did an excellent job in 
writing up a good article and trying to keep a, a journalistic course, which should be objective as stating facts, which I think he did with everything at hand. And he ended the article, which I read last night, and I think was published last night, so when we're recording this. And he said that apparently Omega is going to reinstate the service of those uh, extracts of the Omega archives as a service to Omega owners. So I found that interesting. And I want to end it at that for now. Okay, right. Let's turn our attention to a more optimistic topic, happier thing to discuss. And also, since we were chatting about RJ and our friends in alternative watch media, let's go to this question, which has come in from Eric Van Leeuwen via our contact form, which, by the way, is buzzing now. So thank you, everybody that's using the contact form. If you do want to get in touch with us, of course, you can contact us on Instagram, either at Rob Nuds or at Alon Ben Joseph via our emails, Rob or Alon at therealtime.show or via the contact form. And if you'd like to become part of the Real Time Network, which is a group of our most ardent listeners, then you can just send us a request and we will add you to the WhatsApp chat group. Now, Eric asks us, which watch podcasts do you listen to yourselves if any, my adventure started with her dinky, but that turned out to become, oh dear, dull and too much focus on Rolex to Eric's tastes. Fratello started nice, but the seemingly endless discussions about non-watch topics drove me away from them as well. Interesting. That might be my fault. What is so nice about yours is the real relevant and diverse content. What kind of ideas do you guys have to keep things interesting in the long run? Keep up the good work, he says. Okay, right. So first questions first. Which watch, po- which watch podcasts do you... Li- I'm supposed to be a professional podcaster. Can you believe it? Which watch podcasts do you listen to yourselves, if any? Alon, answer the question, please. Sure thing. So, Erik van Leeuwen. Erik of the Lions in Dutch. Uh, thank you for the question. Good to see you last night. A quick shout out to him. He's uh, a gentleman... A bit more senior than me, but I feel already as an old geezer. So he's making a huge career switch. He is schooling himself to be a watchmaker, not just a watchmaker. He's going for the high-end stuff. And the cool thing is, he is a apprentice to Richard Hubbling. And he goes, visits Maria Richard. Now, I believe for the third time, if I'm not mistaken. So that's uber cool. So maybe we should get him on the air to share his experiences, by the way. Thank you, Eric. I personally do not listen to the real-time show, but I enjoy them dearly to make them. The funny thing is I wasn't such of a podcast listener. I only listen when I work out a bit or in the car. I never drive that long, so I don't listen that much. But because I am a wannabe podcaster now in, in Rob's slipstream, my podcast mentor, I start listening to more. And I met the gentleman of Manna van der Tijd. So that's actually the only Dutch podcast I listen to. Just about watches. So shout out to these gents. Doing very well. Uh, in English, I am on the same wavelength as you about Fratello. I actually used to listen only to Rob at Fratello. And I've had the honor to be a guest on his show. Uh, when Rob uh, left and uh, started his new career, 
we we both uh, said, hey, I want to do something new with audio, and that's how we found each other in the real-time show. But I've re-found Fratello. I don't like all their episodes, and I hope that both Mike and uh, Balaj are listening. I love you guys to bits, but dudes, those first 10 minutes about the weather and beers, I don't want to hear it. And same goes to my friend Felix Schultz and his co-host, which I don't know personally, Andy Green, uh, Down Under, OT, the podcast. I love these guys. Same story. The first 10 minutes, they always talk about Netflix episodes and whatever. I want to hear watch stuff. So Eric, I feel you. I want to hear watch-related content. So that's what we try to do at the real-time show as well. Just dive in. Do I listen to something else? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Obviously, Ariel Adams. He has two series, I believe. Superlative, which is always interviews with industry insiders. And he has another one that I forgot what it's called because I don't listen to it. I believe they discuss uh, novelties in the industry. I think that's a blog to watch weekly. Could be. I don't. I didn't subscribe to that. I don't listen to that. Hodinki actually skipped. I do love talking watches. From the first ever episode, uh, our mutual friend Ben Clymer did. I loved it. I love the stories of collectors, why they collect what they collect. I watched them in batches. So I've seen almost all of them. But the audio podcasts, I actually maybe never listened to it. I believe they bought the Grey NATO which I've listened to once in a while. I know the chaps of Scottish Watches are doing amazingly, but I have a difficulty following with the accent. And that's my ignorance, so I apologize. Um, I think that's it. And I listen to a few Diamond podcasts, which are not relevant to answer here. You, Rob. Yeah, well, I'm a podcast addict, and I listen to a few non-watchmaking podcasts. I'll get out of the way first, just to name check them. I listen to around... The NFL, uh, which is hosted by Dan Hansis and Greg Rosenthal and Mark Sessler most often, and formerly the late, great Chris Wessling. And I listen to The Rest is Politics with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, which is the most listened to podcast in the UK and very interesting because it's a bipartisan podcast in which uh, Alistair, the former communications director of the Labour Party under Tony Blair, He's Labour, and Rory is a former Conservative MP and a fascinating chap. Really lovely dynamic between them. Their tagline is disagreeing agreeably or something along those lines. And it's really nice. They do a secondary podcast called Leading, which interviews world leaders, which is fascinating. And also, I have a long list of watchmaking podcasts that I enjoy. I do enjoy the OT with Felix and Andy. I can handle a bit of the banter and uh, and the chat about other stuff. And it's, it's interesting to see how other people approach it. I also like James and Jason at the Grey NATO. Their podcast, I find, is much more like culturally focused. It's more about like your context of uh, uh, films and media and other high-tech equipment and whatnot. And um, they're both great characters, both great watch lovers. And I think that's a good podcast to listen to if you like those guys and their dynamic. I do listen to Superlative. I love Ariel's interviewing style. I loved having him on the show. I've been on Superlative myself as a guest, and I hope to have him back in the future on the real-time show. I haven't listened to a blog to watch weekly yet, which is run by Rick Atkinson, formerly of Scottish Watchers, when it was Rick and Ricky in the early days. 
I do like Scottish Watchers a lot. I think it's a very different proposition from something like the Real Time Show because it is mostly sort of banter. It's kind of like Red Bar chat, really. And that's really nice if you're into the Red Bar scene. And David Sharp, of course, who's uh, Ricky's co-host, is very, very big in the Red Bar scene in the UK, uh, in Scotland especially, and also in England. And they have their characters, which I think if you like, and if you can get on board with the accent, which is no problem for me, then absolutely check that one out. My sleeper tip and my personal favorite other watchmaking podcast is actually Keeping Time by Jeremy Oster, who is a jeweler in Denver. I met Jeremy once when I worked for Nomos and hope to visit him again soon. He's a good guy. He's got a great deal of experience, talks very well, has great guests, and it's very informative. And if you like the style of the real-time show, our sort of no-nonsense approach and getting right into it, then I think you'll enjoy uh, Keeping Time by Oster Jewelers as well. And that is my answer, Alan. I see your hand up in the chat. I'll shut up. Yes, 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 yes. Jeremy Oster, I'm so sorry. He is, together with you, my northern light in podcasting. You are a wonder man, not wonder woman, but wonder man, you're Superman. You are Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think Spidey is cool. And they made Air Jordans with Spidey, but there is literally no correlation there. I didn't buy them either. I got eight jobs. <laughs> that was unintentional. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but um, on a serious note. Um, so I literally loved you on Fratello. Ariel, I think, is too harsh on the air, but content-wise, he's a king. He's good. He's a real journalist. What? That's it. He's a real journalist, and that's the thing. Like He really digs, he really pushes, and yeah, okay, it can be abrasive to some people, but what do you listen to podcasts for if it's not the insights behind the curtain? And I think no, 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 no. of all the people, he's, he's the most accomplished host. You know, you may not like his style, that's fine, but like I think the content is pretty damn good. No, he's good. He's good. I'm not criticizing him, and I, I don't find him harsh at all it's just is is it does it sound smooth on the ears i don't even know if that's a saying or you can say that in english or whatever but so so mike and balaj are too laid back i find felix and andy very soothing and relaxed and really this laid back aussie vibe i get the feedback about our show that we are high energy and that feedback came also during red bar that that when you and I don't do the interviews together, it becomes automatically as dynamic. So I think that as a compliment, okay? So that's what we want though. And you and I are very passionate guys. Not saying that the other guys aren't, but not everybody can be in host, right? And, and, and host, you have to have a good voice. You can't work on radio. This is technically radio. Not saying that I have such a great voice, but okay. So Jeremy was my role model as a retailer. And he actually inspired me as a retailer to start a podcast for Ace Jewelers, actually. So this is a shout out to him. And I almost listen to every episode he has recorded. Yeah, well, that's a great way to spend your time. Absolutely. And I tell you, I don't know whether people think we have voices for radio, but we definitely have faces for them. That's for sure. Let's move on to the second part. <laughs> 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 I nearly killed you that time. Jeez, I'm going to control that coughing fit. Uh, all right. Okay. You know, I'm going to put up a poll to ask if you are as sexy as you believe you are. Hey, don't don't come to me with that question. You've got to ask the uh, 
the groupies, not the Robettes, or whatever. Yeah, we're we're going to I, I think the next fair we go to, I'm going to make a call on a tablet. I'm just going to walk around the halls. Yeah, well, it doesn't work in real life because I'm so short. You know, it kind of like destroys the illusion. You know, from a distance, you might sort of think, oh, it could be 6'2", but up, up close, I'm, I'm minuscule. Um, okay, uh, second part of Eric's question. Nothing to do with my physical form. Uh, he says, what kind of ideas do you have to keep things interesting in the long run? Now, this is a really good question because it's something, of course, we have to discuss and talk about constantly. Now, we're quite a young podcast when all said and done. We've only been going for about seven seven months, is it now? Since since November 1st, I think was our first episode in 2022. And already in that time, we tried to do a few things differently. I mean, firstly, the Q&A session is not exactly you know, reinventing the wheel, but doing the regular shows as we have done really has kept us very engaged with our audience and i think that's what's built a, a dedicated core following and the articles this was a real jump i think in terms of diversity of content something that no one else in the watch industry has done before i've actually never encountered it in any any kind of media i may be wrong but we had this discussion you and i for a long time because you were very keen when we started out to have a blog running alongside the podcast and i was very reluctant to do that because having worked for many of the major blogs in the world i'm aware of just how much time and effort it is to maintain consistent quality and frequency that is necessary to punch in the same category as our media peers but we had these ideas that we wanted to express and we didn't have a format for them and i was listening to an audiobook and it suddenly dawned on me that there's no reason why we can't have audio articles. And that's where articles came from. And at the same time, David had got in touch and I'd read some of his existing writing and was very impressed with his style and said, hey, look, why don't you create these articles for us? I'll read them out and then we'll analyze them, which is another wrinkle to the article series that is you know, completely new. Nobody's really ever done that before to put out what is effectively a very short audio book, you know, between about eight and 15 minutes long, depending on the length of the article itself, and then to really chop it up with the three of us. I love those three-way shows that we have. I think they're really dynamic, and it's really great to have David's voice on air as well, and I hope to have more of that in the future. As I have said, we are thinking about changing the frequency of our output, and the, well, not the frequency, but the style of it maybe, you know, so that we have more articles and fewer full shows so people can really like consume everything and stay on top of it and be more active in the Q&As when they roll around every two weeks as would be the case and as we already mentioned having us both on the interviews with our guests is also a nice little treat but in addition to that we also pioneered the blind reveal with chapek and ink dial in which we revealed or described at least and did our best to describe a brand new watch that had never been seen before to an artist who also hadn't seen it and then ben lee that's ink dial sketched it and got ever so close to the final product and that created a real storm of interest around the antarctic skeleton before it it released the revelation as its um, official name and that was nice in the future to answer your question directly eric we plan on partnering with brands to do more exciting testing procedures we have an interesting idea on the horizon with sequent we've talked to some other brands who i don't feel that we should name just yet about creating special edition watches for good causes and special moments in the watch or international calendars. And we want to try, as we said right from the very start, to make the real-time show a force for good in the industry. And at the moment, we're making like basically no money because we are 
pushing the promotion ourselves out of our own pockets. We're trying to stay as independent as possible so that we can still offer unbiased opinions on everything that we talk about. And we want, when we pursue partnerships with brands, to do it in a way that is totally transparent and is hopefully fun for the listeners and doesn't detract from our ability to be straight up and direct and offer our unvarnished opinions, but also just to give people more stuff to get excited about, more stuff to talk about, more exciting initiatives to back and support sometimes financially. And hopefully for that, they would receive a very nice product that we have co-designed with some of our favorite people in the industry. And we may continue to pursue the product review shows, which we also pioneered early on in our existence. So there's quite a lot of things going on. If our listeners have any ideas of what they'd like us to do, then please get in touch, as we've mentioned. And if you really want to be part of the network, then let us know, hop on board, discuss it with like-minded people and see in which direction you can guide us. Alon, anything to add? No, I think you summarized it very well. And, and, and we are here for you. You is being the listener. We're here to serve. We do want to have fun. We're having tremendous fun. I'm actually super honored and surprised in a positive sense how rapidly our network is growing, how active everyone is. There's a nice vibe. There's a lot of knowledge being shared. Everybody can be her or himself. And so um, that is a super bonus for me. Give us feedback. Please do. Do we need to change something? I guess something to, to answer a part of Eric's question is, we always said we are catering the watch nerds. So criticism I got, you guys go too deep, too technical. You talk about brands that I've never heard of. That's immediately that criticism is a compliment because loads of uh, listeners, acquaintances of mine that like the mainstream brands started listening to the podcast, got schooled slash educated, super excited. They never heard of Chapek. They never heard of H. Moser. They never heard of Uvek. And it's now hardcore on their radar and they're falling in love. And that's our purpose, sharing knowledge and passing on the passion and the enthusiasm for watchmaking and the art of watchmaking. Now, one thing that I think you and I are really trying to work on is to keep the episodes shorter. But we tried to solve that with the audio episodes. We really tried to keep the audio analysis episodes shorter. You and I have been saying, let's try to do Q&A at 45. But you and I are such chatterboxes. We really struggle. But I want to end this question, this chapter on this episode. Please keep your feedback coming. Positive, negative, criticism. We always learn from it. Yeah, very well said. And although it would be nice to maybe make slightly shorter episodes on the Q&A side of things, one of the side effects of the network growing apace as it has done, especially in recent months or recent weeks, should I say, um, is that we just have so many questions that we have to get through. And we have some stalwarts who ask us basically enough questions for us to address one of theirs every week. You know, we've got Christopher in the group. We've got Richard Swords, who is now a member of the network and a very valuable member of the team really because he provides us with so many good questions and we're going to end on one of his momentarily but we're going to go to a question from darren aldos first came in via the contact form as well can you believe it what a what a spike in interest we've seen in the website that's really really nice to see so thank you for everyone that's visiting the website and enjoying the artwork by our 
teammate Peter Ernst, my office buddy here in Dresden, who does all of the illustrations for us. Now, Darren says, Hi, Rob and Alan. Love the show and especially the Q&A sessions. My question is about the price increases we have seen over the last 12 to 24 months across the board. I am thinking mostly about brands where what I would know as a 4 to 8k euro watch previously now appears to be 6 to 12k. Cough, cough, Speedmaster. I just bought an IWC Mark XX, that's 20, on the bracelet, which I love, but it had yet another increase around watches and wonders, which my AD informed me of as I picked up the watch. He honoured the old price, good chap, but I was really astonished at another increase already. As the market appears to be slowing down recently, is there precedent for watch brands doing price correction the other way, actually lowering the MSRP? Or is it reliant on the consumer being able to negotiate discounts with ADs? Thanks a lot, and I'd love to join the WhatsApp group if you would allow. Darren, I've got your number on my phone. I'm waiting for you to pop up on my WhatsApp. You will be added if you haven't already been added by the time this episode airs on Tuesday the 13th of June, then just give me another nudge and I'll make sure that you get in that group as soon as possible. All right, Alon, nice question from Darren. I don't know him personally. I don't know if it's a name that you've encountered before. Um, So maybe it's just a new listener we've accrued over time. Darren, welcome. Thank you. I personally don't know Darren. Keen to meet you. Thank you, sir. Great question. If you're new to the show, this is the real time show. We give real opinions, real talks, and we say what we think. So, yes, I agree with you. And it is happening. And it's some brands are being shameless. And I'm a retailer. And I'm maybe not supposed to say this, but I don't give a heck. Because what you see is what you get. And in our boutiques, we give honest feedback. And sometimes we say things are overpriced. But it is an emotional project. It has nothing to do with rationale or ratio. It's all about emotion. We have a saying uh, in Dutch, especially, and we use it for pre-owned stuff, cars or watches. What is it worth? The worth is what a madman would pay. Yeah, I'm transliterating it. Value is subjective, especially in this world. Because if you boil everything down to uh, uh, ingredients and manpower, it doesn't make any sense. And I believe George Kern, as the former IWC CEO, went on a Swiss TED Talk-ish thing and literally with his fingers pointed out that about 10 centimeters wide, his fingers apart, was marketing. So he admitted to it, which is honest. Are they pushing the envelope? We said that several times on air. We isolated one watch, the brand that you actually bought. Congrats on the Mark 20. Cool watch, amazing watch. I am amazed how steep that price is for the quality they supply. It's good, but I find it ambitious. Now, we spoke about the sibling of your Mark 20, the new engineer. I find that extremely expensive, but you refer to the Speedy. I always said the Speedy is undervalued. It's too cheap. If you look at the caliber that they've always been using, it's amazing. So still, at, let's say a Plexi, I believe does around 7,500. Double Sapphire does 86 or 84 or something like that. I don't find that too expensive for the quality they deliver. And then what all brands do is they sit behind their Excels 
and then they do a market research and then they make a competition analysis. They always make a graph and then they position themselves bang in the middle with pictures and pricing and then compare themselves to other brands. But sometimes I, I think they eat mushrooms. Sometimes I, I think they have beer goggles on, but sometimes they're disillusioned, far from reality. What we've seen in the last 12 to four months, I believe is shameless. It seems they grabbed the global inflation, which on average was uh, 10, let's say, percent. They took that as a basis and then said, oh, on average, we always increase our price 5 to 7%. Hey, let's do it 17%. Hey, let's do it a few times a year. Some brands are also very naughty. They look at waiting lists and they say, oh, there's so much demand. And econom- e- e- economics is supply and demand, right? So we can ask more, which is shameless in my opinion. And, and things are going very rapidly now. I won't call it a hot air balloon. So a balloon with hot air that's going to pop. But the idiocy in the Swiss, especially the Swiss watchmakers, there's only one way with them. And that's up both in pricing. Prices always go up. They never come down. And in their predictions, there is never a correction. When they make budgets, there is never a connection downwards. Correction, sorry. I always say from biblical times, we always said there's seven fat years, there's seven meager years, right? Everything is cyclical. Everything goes up and down. Everything in life. So that really, really is, is crazy. It's, 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 it's mad men that, that are running that show if they do that. Now, why do I applaud and salute Jean-Claude Bivel? Not only does he relatively speak very frankly, he says what he thinks and he does what he says. And when he was running the show at LVMH Watch and Jewelry Division, so when Hublot got bought, he came on board, slowly from Hublot took over Zenith and Tag Heuer. Bulgari he didn't touch. And he corrected pricing on Tag Heuer. He simply said, it's too expensive. And I really, really respected that and applauded that. And he immediately changed pricing and simply took less margin, right? Because production costs didn't come down. Those are my two cents. I'm very curious what you're going to say, Rob. I think you're absolutely hit, hit the nail on the head when you said that there's very, very rarely a price correction. It's almost impossible for a brand to do that in a reputationally sound manner. You can't release a product, charge a price for it, and then when you've realized that you've pushed the boat too far, reduce that price because you are really going to piss off the customers that paid the inflated price originally. There are ways around it. And there are ways that raising prices to what seem like obscene levels like this can benefit your brand in the long run. If you're trying to, let's say, clear out a lower price point into which you plan on launching a new model, which will then seem comparatively well-priced to a model that has been moved above it, 
and start anew with that reference and ultimately discontinue the one that's overpriced. I think it's far better for a brand to discontinue an overpriced model than it is for them to reduce it. I would never, ever, ever advocate that from behind the scenes if I was advising a brand that feels like they got a little bit too cocky or that a bit too big for their boots or overestimated the amount of serious buyers on waiting lists, which let's face it can be pretty misleading depending on duplicates in those waiting lists because many people that want a watch aren't just on one waiting list for it they're, they're on them all i mean that's the smart thing to do if you want to watch to hell with the watchmaker trying to you know gauge how many pieces they need to make go and put yourself on every waiting list going so you've got the best chance of getting one so yeah i i think that brands have got a little bit too greedy in recent years and they have seen the massive explosion of interest throughout the pandemic especially in pre-love pieces and they're putting up the msrps across the board i think to try and get more of that money into their coffers rather than allowing it to flow around the secondary market is it sustainable well like alan's dutch saying it depends how long the madmen will continue to pay the prices that they deem to be fair value for the watches that they want. That could persist for quite some time because as we are noticing, as is always the case in society, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So I think that the majority of luxury watch buyers are probably still in a pretty good shape financially. And as someone pointed out to me once, and I think we've mentioned on this podcast before there is a logic to paying even over msrp depending on the projected delivery times of the watch in question now i always said i would never pay over msrp for a watch but there is a logic to it in the sense that if you pay 10 or 20 percent over the rrp of a watch today that has a projected five-year waiting time on it by the time your watch rolls around available in five years its retail price will be almost certainly more than the 10 or 20% premium you paid in the first instance to get your hands on it when you did. And at that point, you could obviously sell that watch probably for a premium and then some because someone else would be jumping the queue in the same manner that you did by buying pre-loved as opposed to waiting for a new watch. So I think that if there is going to be a price correction, we will see it on the back of new models rather than existing models being driven downwards. It just doesn't seem likely that any major brand would want to screw down their prices for our sakes. On that subject, because it feeds quite nicely into waiting lists, we have a question from Richard Swords to end the show. And this one is... Hi guys, I've mostly purchased or very luckily been given watches to remember or celebrate an occasion or milestone in my life, but this means I've been limited to what's in the range at that time. That means I've missed out on watches that have come and gone in the intervening periods. How would you recommend somebody go about significant purchases to protect, to protect against the possibility of missing out? Great question, Richard. I'm going to take this one for a couple of minutes, then let Alon come back at me and then we're going to wrap up the show i'm going to say this on the subject of wait lists think about the milestones in your future and i've just been experiencing this myself this week having spoken to our mutual friend sylvan Berneron about his upcoming release and i was thinking well when am i going to try and get my hands on one of these wonderful watches and at first i thought okay well i'm a couple of years away from 40 that's a great time to buy a watch of this stature Unfortunately, 
it seems like Sylvan's project is going to be a little bit too popular for me to get my hands on one even in that time frame. So I looked ahead and thought, well, 45 years old, that's a fine age and a good amount of time to save up for what would be a, well, a hefty piece and easily the most expensive for my collection if I were able to corral one. But I thought that's not a bad way to look at things. Like look around yourself. What kind of milestones can you see coming? Have you got a nephew or a son or a daughter that's about, or a niece for that matter, or a cousin who's about to turn 18 or graduate or finish their PhD or maybe get their first job or achieve some other goal and you want to buy them a watch for that. You know these things are coming. How old are you? Are you close to a milestone birthday? Are you five years from one, 10 years from one? If you are, have a little think about maybe what brand you would like to buy for that moment. Go to that brand and tell them, say, I want to get on a waiting list. And you might want to put yourself on a waiting list for a specific model. With a major brand like Rolex, you might have to. You might have to go in there and say, oh, put me down for the Daytona, put me down for the sub. I'm aiming to get one at this point five years from now or four years from now or whatever. Better still, identify a small independent brand that has long lead times anyway. Go to them, talk to them, have an open dialogue back and forth and say, look, I'm looking to purchase a watch to mark this moment in my life. And I want to have the opportunity to choose what that watch is at that time, because new things might come out, old things might be on the way out, and I might be able to preempt that and say to you, can you hold one for me? Can you make an extra one for me, et cetera, et cetera. If you've got money in hand that you can put down to reserve basically a spot, this is kind of like how Anne Ordain does it with their waiting list. You buy a spot on the waiting list and you can have whatever you want that's in the current collection at that time. Maybe if there's a model you've got your eye on and you're worried about it being discontinued, you can actually talk to the brand and say, look, I'm really, really desirous of this piece. Is there any way you can keep that for me or make one for me or hold back one from a limitation to have it created at that point? You cannot go wrong with being open and honest with an authorized dealer or a brand, especially if they're willing to engage like many independents are. It might not manifest in what you want, but it gives you the best chance of not missing out. Alon, your thoughts, please. Well said, well done. So from a retailer's perspective, so at Ace, we're the odd one out. Our waiting lists are built on one thing, first come, first serve, meaning we follow dates on waiting lists, timestamps. I don't care if you're my buddy, if you spend 10K, 10 euros, 100K, we don't do favorism, but we're being the odd one out. So the hottest waiting lists for maybe a decade already are obviously Patek Philippe. Rolex, and Audemars Piquet. I know for my friends that are ADs for these brands, they don't work that way. And they're very inclined to add value, meaning they're there to serve. If you come to them with a real story, not a BS story, that you are celebrating an occasion, they will definitely favor selling it to you. They are first and foremost scared of the flippers. They don't want the watches to go to people that flip them because the brands don't want that either. So if you think about the tagline, the motto, the slogan by Patek Philippe, you actually never own one, you keep it for the next generation, then you have a higher chance of succeeding when you celebrate life's most precious moments, right? And that's how it does work. So I agree with you, Rob. So well said. And as a retailer, that often works like that. Very nicely said. Lots of advice. 
If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by contacting us on Instagram, either at Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or at Alan Ben Joseph, A-L-L-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H, or via our usual emails as before stated. Till next time, stay safe and keep on ticking.